Positively Joy. Are you living life but feel like something's missing? You've come to the right place. I'm Yvette Walker, your host for this podcast on finding the true meaning of God's joy. Joy is not a feeling, it's faith. And my guests and I will talk about how to avoid falling down the rabbit hole of chasing physical or emotional joy. In this season, we'll tackle spiritual growth as we discover the true joy of the Lord. It's Yvette here, putting on my writer's hat. Do you like thrills, mystery, and a little clean romance? My latest book and first novel is on Amazon. 60 is a fast-paced crime novel of a Christian reporter who goes back to the location of her first big news story about a serial killer. Now an editor, Linda Radcliffe finds intrigue and an old love. Get your copy today. Go to PositivelyJoy.com slash books to see all my fiction and inspirational nonfiction, like my devotional, Whispering in His Ear, and Journaling His Joy, a six-month guided journal to help you find real joy. Clinton Hatton has experienced as much pain as most people. But God has given him the task of sharing a message of being strong and courageous, even in the darkest of times. Quote, Our pain in some form will be with us for the rest of our lives, Clint said. But that pain represents the love he has for his son Gabriel, a pilot who died a tragic death. After Gabriel's death, he and his family started living big, bold, and brave. Learn more about it from Clint himself. Here's Clint. Clint, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Yvette. I am so excited to talk to you. I love the title of your podcast, and then I've, I've listened to a little bit of it, and you have a beautiful smile, so I'm, I'm ready to have this conversation. Okay, wonderful. Well, you are an author, a speaker, and a personal development coach, and you know, I, this season we're talking about spiritual growth, your background and the right. inspiration for your foundation, Big Bold Brave, I think can speak a lot to that. But I always like to get started and find out a little bit more about our guests. Our listeners can understand your faith walk. And then I don't definitely want to jump into the inspiration. And that, of course, is your son, Gabriel. So let's yeah. get started with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, I grew up in Southern California. And the way I like to tell my story is it was pretty normal. I mean, it felt like a, a typical Southern California life. We were outside all the time, always playing. You know, I was into football and baseball and and just really loving life. And then around 12 was, and, and oh, I, sh- I guess I should say first, you know, we were not church people. Mm. Um, so even though if I could say it this way, you know, whenever you had to fill out a form that asked if you're a Protestant or a Catholic or whatever, we always checked the box Protestant. Okay. But in those days, I never really knew why, because we didn't go to church. There was really nothing attached to it. So some, for some reason, that was the box we checked, but that was it. So there really wasn't much going on with, you know, faith or God other than belief in a God. You know, we weren't, we weren't atheists. So, 
But uh, anyway, what what ended up happening is that things kind of took a pretty bad turn when I was between 11 and 12. My parents had me very late. And by the time I was 11 or 12, they'd already been married over 25 years. So needless to say, they had had a pretty long track record. They were from a different generation. So they got married at 18 and 16. So very young. And my dad ended up having an affair. And that turned pretty ugly pretty quick. He ended up moving out and uh, living with his girlfriend who had a son that was, you know, maybe a couple of years older than me. So very close to my age. Uh, So it was a very just awful, scary, weird time, you know, at that stage of my life. Uh, I actually have an older brother, but he's eight years older and he had moved hundreds of miles away. So Mm. it was, it was like being an only child at that stage of my life. And what happened was my mom didn't respond to that well. She, you know, it was the only man she ever knew. And, you know, I can only imagine what she was going through in those days, but she turned to drinking very heavily. And then with that, she ended up suffering from suicidal ideation. And so without going too far in the weeds of that story, you know, she tried, I was the only one living with her. She tried committing suicide multiple times and twice almost killed me along with her once in a speeding vehicle and another time that involved a handgun. And so that was an experience you know, that happened at that early age that two, about two years later, they reconciled. Wow. And just, and just to fast forward my story with my parents, you know, we, we ended up in my, you know, teen, late teenage years, early twenties, all the way up until they, they both passed away uh, about eight years ago. We had a great relationship, uh, but they reconciled after about two years, their marriage continued, but I already had some damage that was done in terms of the way I started coping with things. And so at 12, 13, you know, even though I was an athlete, I started drinking a lot. I started doing pretty hardcore drugs. Um, Athletics, frankly, was the only thing that kind of kept me on a a type of straight and narrow just because I wanted to be able to compete and do well. And so. Wow. What was your sport? What was your sport? Yeah, Football and baseball at that Mm -hmm. stage. I was good at at both. Mm -hmm. And so those were my sports. And then, you know, a couple of things happened along that journey, too, that all kind of lead into where we're going to go today, even, you know, with my faith Um, at. I guess I was 18, my senior year of baseball, we were one of the top teams in Southern California. I was starting shortstop, you know, all league already from the year before, ready to just kill it. And I blew up my knee the first, uh, actually the first inning of the first game of the season. Oh no. I I made it through three innings before I just couldn't walk anymore. And that was the end of it. And so that was a devastating blow, right? As well. And so kind of the same thing, my coping mechanism was, I just, partied all the time because then I couldn't even do anything for almost a year. But I ended up deciding after a year off and and kind of getting back into shape and getting my knee rehab that I wanted to give it another go. So I moved to Northern California where my parents had decided to retire and play two years of junior college football there, hoping that with football, I could extend my career, go to a no, not necessarily a D1 school, but just a school where maybe they would pay for the rest of my education and, and continue. And my sophomore year, seventh game of the season, I had another catastrophic knee injury and it just put an end to everything. Wow. So, you know, between what happened when I was 12 and using drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism and then still partying during those times where I was trying to pursue, you know, an athletic career of sorts, once that was no longer even on the table, and I was 19 at that point, just, just shy of 20. I just, I had no compass. I had no compass. And so 
it got worse. I ended up getting in the car business at the age of 21. So I was a professional salesperson, but I actually started doing meth and I did meth for nine years. Wow. Uh, it, it's amazing. People who really don't know about me, you hear about that drug and you think it's so catastrophic. It's not long-term, but it is long-term. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't look today even like you typically would think of when you, you know, say former meth addict, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would um, agree. Yeah. And and I, you know, there were some people that I knew back in the day that um, either it didn't end well for them or they, yeah. they look, I mean, some of them look 20, 30 years older than I do, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was just very fortunate, but ultimately all of this stuff played into, by the time I was 30 years old, I had gotten married or you know, marriage was a complete train wreck. You know, I was not, uh, I was not equipped to be a great husband. She was not equipped for many reasons as well. We both brought in a lot of pain and again, a lot of faulty coping mechanisms. But what ended up happening was I got involved with this nutritional marketing company. It was a direct sales company. And through that, it's kind of where my fate journey began because there was people involved in that, including my upline that were very successful. I mean, my main upline was on the cover of success magazine, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and she was a believer. And so when she, when she would train <laughs> me, you know, in the business every now and then she'd go, Hey, uh, do you have a Bible? And I go, yeah, I mean, I own a Bible. <laughs> so that was about it. There's one in the house, right? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a very uh, old paperweight around here lately, but yeah. So anyway, she would just throw out these little principles here and there. But Yvette, what happened was, is you know, there was I recognized something different about their life, and this was really the attraction for me because uh, I had no conscious interest in following Jesus, going to church, any of that kind of stuff. I'd had a short experience for a couple months when I was about 18 and, you know, I'd kind of left that behind. And that was that bad things happened to them too, mm-hmm. but they seemed to respond to them very differently. They always seemed to have, I didn't use the word, you know, or term peace back then, but, but that's what it was. They seemed to be able to keep a peace about them even when things were challenging. And, you know, it wasn't that way for me. You know, when things came against me, I would get really angry or I would get not, I've never been a real depressed individual, but just, uh, you know, feeling hopeless and and that maybe this is just my lot in life, those kinds of mindsets. Yeah. So I went, so I went to church with them and you probably can guess where this story is going now. I, you know, I ended up having a really powerful experience and that's when, this is 1997, I decided to give my life to the Lord. And it was about a year before that. Actually, I should have said this, and I'm going to bounce it back to you. Uh, I I took meth one last time with my now ex-wife. And the next day I woke up, Yvette, and I just knew I wanted to be a different person. I didn't want to feel that way anymore. And I, I just quit. Mm. I just quit. And then about a year later, you know, I, I ended up becoming a man of faith. And that's when I feel like during that season of my life, my mindsets really began to change. And I had a much different view on life and who I could be as a person. Wow. So it's it's certainly a fascinating story. And to be clear, all the other times, obviously, when you were 12 and the, you know, the injuries, you said you had no compass. You didn't cling, you know, you believed that there was something out there, but you didn't cling to God yeah, at that time. It's true. It's true. But but look at what happened. I mean, you somebody might say, 
okay, so now he's how now he's around people who are gonna sharpen him, iron sharpen uh, sharpens iron. Why wouldn't God take away that taste for meth from him so he wouldn't even have to do it one more time? Somebody might argue that, but look what happened. He allowed you to do that and convicted your heart clearly. Because you yeah, woke, it was you woke up a different person. And it was even before I made the decision to follow him, you know. So I know I know people have looked at that over the years as what is that? Was God even involved? You know, I can't prove it, but I'm I'm 100% convinced in my own heart and mind mm-hmm. that he was already working in me at that time. Yeah. It was just months or about a year later that I actually consciously made a decision to follow him. Once you followed him and you think back on your youth, were you angry? Did you think that he wasn't with you? How have you reconciled mm. that? Yeah, you know, that's the first time somebody's asked me that question in a long time. It's very interesting. You know, I I don't feel like or have any conscious, um, you know, recognition of feeling angry towards God. Mm-hmm. It's funny, though, over the years, gosh, I haven't even remembered this in so long. From the time I was like four or five years old, and then again, when I was probably about eight or nine, and then again, like early teens after this whole thing happened, I had very vivid dreams Mm. of God coming in the clouds, quite literally. Now, I didn't even know that scripture. But later on, you know, in my 30s, when I'm starting to read the scriptures, when I read about him coming in the clouds, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's that recurring dream I had, you know? Um, So I think there was this certainly spiritual, if not also a subconscious awareness that God was still involved in my life somehow, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but obviously I had not really gone all in or made that choice until I was about 31. So I don't think anger for me was really an issue. You know, I've, if anything, I just feel like I'm not a revisionist. I'm not someone who thinks, re- I just don't think regret is a healthy thing at all. So mm-hmm. I don't have regrets, but if I could have a do-over, <laughs> if I had a <laughs> mulligan, it would be obviously I wish I would have made that decision much earlier in my life for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you just talked about the people that you became involved with with the nutrition company and how it wasn't that bad things didn't happen in their lives, but they just responded to it differently. So yeah. you 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 surrender, you give a lot your life to Christ, and and that's wonderful, but it doesn't mean bad things still didn't happen in your life. And that takes sure. us to the tragedy with Gabriel and then the creation of the foundation. So let's talk about that story. Yeah. Well, actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to take just one step back a little bit from that because it's going to help us Mm -hmm. understand, you know, the whole story in and of itself. So um, when I, so I already said I was divorced, that was with my previous marriage and it just, you know, we were two very unhealthy people. We were miserable and she finally asked me for a divorce and, and I granted it. And that's how that ended. But a few years later, when I moved from California to Dallas, which is where I live now, is when I was introduced to my now bride of, of almost 20 years. We'll be celebrating 20 years in April. And so in the course of that time is when Gabriel came into my life, she came into my life, um, and we ended up having a couple other sons. But during that, you know, we suffered a miscarriage. Uh, Gabriel was born three, uh, excuse me, two months early. He was born at three pounds, 12 ounces mm. because she had a pregnancy disease called preeclampsia. Her mm-hmm. blood pressure just skyrocketed with my middle son, Joel. She made it full term, but then when it was time to come out of the anesthesia, they actually pulled me out of the room I was in with him, with the nurse getting him cleaned up because she wasn't coming out of it. 
And so that was a very scary night. Um, Obviously, it turned in our favor eventually, but another scary experience. And then my youngest son, Liam, uh, we were on staff at a church up in Washington State, decided, okay, we're going to have one more. We're going to try for a girl. We've got two boys. Well, we ended up with another boy, but he was born at one pound, 14 ounces. That particular time, she ended up with full-blown what's called HELP syndrome. Some listeners may know what that is, mm-hmm. but basically it's preeclampsia to a whole new level where your, your major organs are beginning to shut down. You're going to die. Uh, yeah. And so he was born three months early. So, you know, we've we've been through some stuff. You know, we've been through some stuff as a family unit. And I think those experiences did have some... Um, they helped us prepare in some ways for where we're about to go when we faced our greatest tragedy of all and the most difficult thing we've ever faced as a family. And that's with Gabriel. So I just kind of wanted to lay that foundation for your listeners because, you know, there was, there was, again, we had beautiful things happening too. You know, you tell a story like that and it sounds like, Oh my gosh, that poor family. We never felt that way. You know, we, we, we had promotions. We had, you know, people that we were influencing. We had great times. We went on vacations, you know? So we, we never felt like life was just this lot of all these bad things, but life does punch you in the mouth. And we had some of those. Yeah. Well, and I thank you for telling me that. Uh, also, the part about you being married in April, that's also my anniversary month. So, oh, <laughs> so come that's, on. that's yeah. So it's April's a good time. Yeah. It's yeah. a great time. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And it's good that you were able to recognize all that goodness, even when there were some difficult times. Absolutely. Which I think is really important for where we're about to go. And so, you know, to to get the listeners up to date on our story, you know, our oldest son, Gabriel, who we've already mentioned, you know, a remarkable kid. Of course, all our kids are remarkable, right? But he was he was very brilliant from very early on, you know, incredible communication skills um, to the to his demise at times. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's one thing when they're teenagers, when they're like six and they can talk like they know more than you do. It was like it was a lot of teachable moments, but, but he was but he was really smart and he was really focused very early on. And so at eight, he ended up flying in a small aircraft with his uncle Danny. And it just, it just did something to me. It was like, you know, like for me, coffee, you know, I got to have my coffee in the morning. Well, for him, it was just this adrenaline rush and he loved it. So he made the decision, I'm going to be a pilot. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, no, okay, that's great. You know, cause you're expecting, you know, he's eight, it's going to change, but, but it just didn't, it just didn't. And then by the time he was a freshman in high school, he had an opportunity actually twofold one was where we live here in McKinney, Texas, which is just outside of Dallas. Our school district has a four-year aviation educational program, which is not typical. There's not many, at least yet, here in the United States. So yeah. he he jumped into that, you know. And then he joined a club called Tango 31 Aero Club that's a, at a little small airport about eight minutes from our house. And that was put together by a gentleman who wanted to develop a club. He's kind of an legend in the aviation industry. He had a hit television show called Airplane Repo. His name is Kevin Lacey. Some of your listeners may have seen the show. So he starts this thing for teenagers so that they can literally start getting opportunities to fly. Yeah. So, you know, I want to bring that part into the story too, because, you know, there was such favor. You know, when we we had been on staff in Washington, as I just mentioned, well, we moved back before his freshman year here in McKinney. And so it seemed like all these opportunities were just opening up for him and God's favor was just all over him. And 
this club, it was the craziest thing. We paid $50 a year just for him to be a part of the club. Mm -hmm. And then Kevin arranged for, he had uh, flight instructors at no cost. They only paid wholesale for the fuel. But the way they earned it was through sweat equity. So from the time he was 14 to 16, before he could actually fly at all, even with a uh, instructor, he worked on oil changes and, and, you know, doing parts of the motors and they would paint an entire plane and just learning all of these things about maintenance and upkeep and all that stuff. So at 16, he starts getting in a plane with the flight instructor. Wow. Takes to it. I mean, just immediately he, and I'm not, I truly am not just saying that because I'm, you know, I'm his dad, I, Kevin and other people, you know, in the aviation industry watch him. It's like, he's just a natural, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he actually soloed before he had his license to drive a car, which was <laughs> a crazy thing. So there's, you know, it's just, everything's good. Yvette is yeah. God's favors on it. He's moving along. He earned a thousand dollar scholarship mm-hmm. from an American airlines program here. And that ended up paying for virtually everything that he needed up until the final exam when he turned 17 to become a pilot. And that was 300 something dollars. So that's the only out of pocket, which, you know, most people know 10, 15 grand on the low end to become a pilot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So he's living his dream, you know, and he's, he's got a pipeline to become a full blown commercial pilot at 21. So he's already taking courses, you know, everything's going great. September 23rd, 2019, he takes a flight. You know, it's all about hours at that stage. They just, they need to fly as much as they can. So a mm-hmm. friend attends University of Arkansas. He flies her up there to drop her back off from something she was doing here in McKinney that weekend and drops her off safely, jumps in his plane. And on the return trip, he got about 20 minutes out of the Fayetteville, Arkansas area. And what the NTSB, who does the... Um, the investigations on all plane crashes determined a couple of years later is that an unexpected weather system had come through and he suffered from spatial disorientation, meaning you lose your horizon. You don't know which way you're going. Yeah. And it was also night flying, which was you know the type of flying he had to be doing. And he crashed and he lost his life chasing his dreams. Wow. And this was 2019. This the is 2019. Ne- the next year, of course, we go into something that nobody could foresee. Yeah. Um, a lockdown, lots of isolation. So tell me, so uh, what month in 2019 did this happen? So he passed away on September 23rd. So okay. that was just about yeah. three months shy of everybody's world getting turned upside down. Right, right. So how did... How were you able to handle that, or or was there grace in that? I mean, I hear stories from people that say that tell you know say that lockdown was the best thing for them, or it was so awful. Here, you as a family are grieving. Yeah. What was that like for you? Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to take you back to the morning of because there were two particular things that took place that first morning that, without question, have been huge in our ability to just continue to move forward mm-hmm. with our life. And I'm saying it that way very intentionally. Um, you know, some people may say the word moving on mm-hmm. and, yes. you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of semantics, but for me, there's a difference because you don't move on from losing, a, you know, a son for sure or yeah. a daughter, but really anybody that's really close to you, you know, it's a void. It's there forever. 
So what happened was the morning of, and this is where I feel like some of the things that we had been through and just seeing the goodness of God, even in that. And then, you know, my experience, obviously 17 years as a pastor, I, I was very much one of those pastors who was heavily involved in coaching and mentoring people and things like that. And so I had unfortunately seen so many cases where people don't have the right processes in place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of divorces um, happen. A lot of marriages don't make it. Um, You have families that kind of fall apart and really struggle. And so that morning, I was very aware, even though I was in incredible pain, I was very aware that we needed a compass. And so that morning, our two boys, you know, his, his younger brothers were nine and 14 at the time. They had slept through the night. They didn't know what was going on. It was a very long, ugly, like worst nightmare kind of a night. We knew he went down at 8 p.m. There's a whole lot in between that I'll not share for sake of time. We didn't get word from the coroner that he was officially dead, even though we had heard through the news hours before that maybe he was until 3.30 a.m. And so we woke the boys up at 7.30 a.m. and I set them down and and after I gave them the news, which I honestly, to this day, I can't tell you what I said to them to deliver the news. And, and all I remember was just the awful cries and screaming. And it's just, it was, it was a really hard time. Mm-hmm. And then once they kind of processed through that, you know, initial shock of the moment, I said, boys, this is what we're going to do. We have two choices. We can choose to identify with the way Gabriel has died. I call the death mentality. Mm-hmm. In other words, we can spend the rest of our lives focused on the tragedy of the death, that he died in a plane crash, that we're not going to be able to you know, be with him during birthdays and Christmases and milestones. And we're going to experience those things. But if that's our focus, if mm-hmm. we stay trapped in that, then we're going to be shadows of ourselves. But there is a second way. And that second way is we're going to choose life. And here's what that looks like. And, you know, I've been able to share with you a little bit about Gabriel. Gabriel attacked life. And so I told him, listen, your brother was living his dream. Mm -hmm. And not just that, he attacked life all the time. You know, he taught himself how to play guitar because he wanted to. He graduated early from high school because he wanted to. He, uh, he was an amazing photographer, and I'm blessed to have literally probably thousands, but hundreds of video, uh, pictures of some amazing, even opportunities that he had to be on the tarmac at the biggest air show of its kind in the world that's in Wisconsin. He was the only photographer allowed on the tarmac to take pictures and, you know, just all these great opportunities that he had because he attacked life. He yeah. just, he had, he was an adventurer, you know, and I said, so. The only way we can honor his life is if we live ours the same way. Not doing what he did. He was, you know, he was different. He had different things that he liked than we do, but that's what we're going to do. And then there was a second part to that event, you know, and that involved the grieving process. Said, so listen, we don't know how any of us are going to grieve as the day goes on because it's going to change from day to day, maybe even hour to hour, you know, especially in the early phases. Sure, of it. Yeah. So I said, so listen, what we need to know is we're going to do this as a family and you need to know that it's okay. Whatever emotion you're feeling, we're not going to try and stop it. So if you're angry, you can have time to be angry. If you're sad, you can have time to be sad and cry if that's what you need to do. Uh, whatever the emotions are, 
There is, there is no shame in any of them. And there's, we're not going to stop each other. Mm -hmm. And that includes us. And so that day I just really established, especially for my sons, you know, as, as being the father, I said, listen, there's times where I'm going to cry. I mean, we were crying that day, obviously. I said, there's going to be times where I think of them and it's going to move me to tears. I'm going to cry. And I'm not going to go hide in a room and not allow you to see that so that I can portray myself as maybe some strong man who's always, you know, I've got us, don't worry kind of thing. I said, Mm -hmm. you need to know that emotions, God gave us emotions and it's okay for us to experience those emotions. And so that's what we're going to do. And so effectively, you know, that's what we have done the last three and a half years. And I'll, and I'll, I'll finish that part of the story with this. I do want your listeners to know, because I'm sure there's many out there who have suffered, you know, the world has suffered as we've, we've hit on already. We didn't do any of this perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, it was never about perfection. It was never about, you know, and, I'll, and I can tell you later how Big Bull Brave even came about the name of it, because it all comes out of that day. But bottom line was, is we had something to recalibrate to. So if we did go a few days and we didn't walk out these values and these mindsets that we had agreed to as a family, we would just have to remind ourselves and have difficult conversations like, listen, this is how we're going to do it. We're not going to isolate ourselves. We're not going to push down our emotions. We're going to talk it through. And so we would just recalibrate and recalibrate. And we've had to do that several times, but it's really served us well. Mm. So let's talk about Big Bold Brave, about the spiritual growth that perhaps you found, you and your family found during this time mm-hmm. and finding meaning in this struggle. Yeah, well, as you know, as your listeners who have suffered a big loss know, you know, anytime you lose someone so dear and so close to you, and there is definitely something unnatural, I think we would all agree on in terms of losing a child. It's not the normal yeah. progression of life that we, you know, we hope we live out. Um, it it causes you to take a hard look, or it can, in our case, it did, caused us to take a hard look at everything in our life. You know, life became even more precious instantly. I feel like my compassion for people went up dramatically. Um, All those things begin to happen. And so part of that journey for me and what led to Big Bull Brave was the morning of this crash. This This is happening after the conversations that I just described to you. We were contacted by two news networks, local, one of them, the NBC affiliate. And the reason was, is they were going to run a story on sure. his crash. Yeah. And so one of them, I took the phone call and, and, uh, you know, she wanted to come do an interview. And I said, there's just no way, you know, we, we were a wreck. I, could, I couldn't do it, you know, but she ended up at the end of the call saying, I, I just want you to think about it. You know, you can always call me back later today, but here's why I think it's important. She said, if I do the report, because I have to do a report, this is my assignment. Yeah. I'm going to do a story. And she was, and, and I should mention she was a believer, Yvette. So mm-hmm. there was that connection. Mm-hmm. She said, if I do the report without you, it's really just going to be a story on how he died. Yeah. If you'll allow me, I'll come, I'll even come to your home. I'll, we can stop and start as much as we need to, you know, but you can tell the story of his life the way you want to tell it. And you can include as much faith as you want to include. And so I said, okay. 
we'll we'll talk about it. <laughs> you know, still said no. <laughs> yeah. And ultimately we, you know, as a family, we ended up having a discussion. My father-in-law was already here at that point as well. And and we ended up, you know, deciding it was really him that kind of pushed it, which was kind of a surprise just for other reasons. But he said, I think this is your first opportunity to live by what you're talking about this morning. And you know, you have an opportunity to tell about how he lived versus someone else just talking about how he died. And so we did the interview. My wife and I did it. It wasn't just me. We did the interview, total blur. I, I couldn't even begin to, to recall what was going on during that whole thing. But what happened was somewhere in that interview, I said he lived his life big, bold, and brave. I do not remember saying it. Yeah. But later that night, she, you know, the segment was aired on our local, you know, Dallas affiliate. And we watched it. It was about a three-minute segment, beautifully done. She did she did a really beautiful job. And at the end of it, instead of, you know, because they edited it all down, like we, you know, all videos yeah. are done. Yeah. And instead of instead of playing the portion where I said it, she at the very end of the segment said, Gabriel's parents encourage you to live like Gabriel, big, bold, and brave. Nice. And when I heard the words back, there was just, and I I'm just calling it life. That's what I felt. I felt like for our family, you know, there was something in that. Now, of course, you know, we're, we're going to talk about it. It did eventually end up becoming my personal development company called Big Bull Brave. The book I've written is called Big Bull Brave. But those were years down the road. Initially, Big Bull Brave was just a family mantra that, and, and we didn't, you know, we didn't walk around the house Every time it looked like somebody was down or whatever, going big, bold, brave, big, bold, brave. You know, we didn't, it wasn't like that. Yeah. But it was something that if, you know, if we were, if we were kind of going through a rough spot or mm -hmm. feeling like, gosh, you know, what do we even want to do today? Do I even feel like working? Do I feel the kids even feel like going to school or whatever? Then we would just remind ourselves, no, we're going to live like Gabriel, big, bold, and brave. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was something that helped us. Just again, I, I use the word recalibrate a lot, just kind of recalibrate and get back on track of just living our lives. And of course, eventually, after after about a year, I began to feel a vision for the company, Big Bull Brave. And it was about two years down the road, largely due. I'm glad I'm so glad you brought up the pandemic because a lot of people hear my story and they get caught up in, you know, the the tragic death of Gabriel, which, you know, for us was clearly that. Uh, and, and being, you know, honest in comparison, COVID obviously had its impact on our family too, but sure. comparatively there was just, COVID was not scary to us. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to anybody that, that, cause there were, I have friends, I know people who lost their lives to COVID and stuff like that. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I'm saying we had already taken the biggest blow that we could ever imagine. So COVID was a reality. It was something that we had to deal with, but it wasn't something that was really dragging us down. We were more focused on just living as a family and moving forward. You know, if that makes yeah. sense. No, so, no, it does. And there's something else that you say, give your pain a purpose. What mm -hmm. does that mean? Yeah. Well, this, and this, what I've described is one of the ways I do, because why I wrote the book when I did and why COVID is even relevant to this is because the entire world lost yeah. starting three months after Gabriel. And so that, and that includes losing loved ones. But that also includes a lot of other very painful kinds of losses that you don't need to compare. You don't need to compare it to my loss. People lost careers. People lost businesses. People mm -hmm. got divorced. 
people have got, you know, some people committed suicide. Some people um, have, have suffered with major depression and fear and anxiety. So there was a lot of loss. And that's really why I decided to write when I did. You know, I think Yvette, I would have written the book no matter what at some yeah. point. Yeah. But I, and that's why when I wrote this book, it's not a grieving book. Mm-hmm. Now, it's got everything I just described to you, but it's got all these other life principles and values that we've lived by. Some of what I mentioned earlier that got us through some of the other stuff in our life that they all have gone together. It's not like there was this one thing or these two things that have helped us move forward with our lives. It's really a combination of all of them. So I wrote something that I just really hoped was going to give people a manual is probably not the right way to say it, but just a guide to be able to recover from those big blows of life because we're all yeah. going to take them. Yeah. Wow. It, it, it really is a poignant story. There's, you know, there's so much to learn in that. And you're right. I mean, people suffer so much loss and certainly there were, there was a lot of loss in COVID. And even as, you know, we're quote unquote coming back uh, because right. people are still suffering um, and then you hear about, you know, the bad news that seems to happen everywhere. We hear about the earthquake and and Turkey and Syria, and we hear about various things. And I think that sometimes we just feel overwhelmed yeah. with, you know, with tragedy, with, you know, with, with bad things. And so um, you have on the Big Bold Brave website, um, this one, you have a lot of great stuff on there. Um, but there was, there's one thing and it's just above your, your, my, why is what you say, what I believe about all humans. Mm -hmm. And I love that part. You say, I believe every human was created to be courageous. I believe every human was created to, with a creative genius. And I believe every human was created to be compassionate. And I think those three things speak a lot to how we can live our lives and even find peace in the circumstances that we find ourselves. I mean, that's what I take from it. Why did yeah. you write this? Yeah. Well, I actually, I'm going to tie because I don't think I answered fully your question. Um, so I apologize for that on the pain, giving your pain a purpose, but mm-hmm. I think those two things go together. So I'm glad you kind of brought that back into it because the first thing, you know, even to write the book, even to start putting myself out there, because, you know, you have to relive this story every time you tell it, right? That's true, yeah. So with the idea that I, that I want to be able to help people get over the gut punches of life and loss and stuff like that, I need to have the courage to be able to have to be emotionally available to processing, you know, even myself as I wrote the book and as I talk in front of people and do things like that. So, but I believe, specifically when I wrote that, I believe, and I think scripture absolutely proved, proves it. You know, we see multiple times in the scriptures where God says to someone, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. The implication is courage isn't outside of me. It's something God already put inside of me. Mm-hmm. And so I truly believe that about every human being. I think the courage is already in you, but you do end up at some point having to make very intentional decisions to exercise that courage mm-hmm. or in some, you know, in some cases, an event like, you know, you'll see people run into a, a burning building or jump into a river to help someone. 
right? That yeah. takes, that's a form of courage, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think the difference is, and I, and I actually wrote about this in my recent newsletter, is that when those things happen, typically when you hear the interviews afterwards of the, mm-hmm. we call them heroes, right? It's a heroic yeah. act. And, and, you, and everybody always asks about fear because fear is such a real thing. Mm-hmm. And most of the time they say, I didn't have time to fear. I had to act. Yeah. So that courage is already in there, right? Yeah. Where we're challenged in our humanity is that most things in life that require courageous decisions are not life or death necessarily. And so I think those can be challenging, but I believe it's in there. And so I made the courageous decision to start writing the book. And that's partly how I have given my pain a purpose. You know, I like to say it this way, because even the the grieving process and methods that I've described to you that we've done, none of that takes away pain. And I want to make that really clear to your listeners. You know, it's the pain in some form, and sometimes it, it feels more stinging and sometimes less. The pain is going to be with us for the rest of our lives. And I don't even ask for that. I don't pray for that to go away. To me, that's not even a goal. And the reason is because that pain represents the love, the great love that I have for my son. So so none of this I'm talking about is about getting rid of pain, but it is about what do you do to tell yourself another story? Because that's what happens. We tell ourselves stories all the time about who we are and where we're going. So rather than allow myself to tell myself a story about my son's tragedy and stay trapped in that story, Mm -hmm. I have chosen to bring him along with me. He wasn't a personal development coach. I'm not doing what he did. Right. But I'm bringing his story, his courage, his zest for life along with me to do what I'm created to do. And it gives my pain a new story. It tells it where to go rather than my pain dictating the rest of my life to me. And that's that's how I really see that. And one thing I love about this book, I, I was able to gather four stories of other people that very different stories, but incredible examples of people that have given their pain a purpose, among other things as well, that I think were super inspiring. And I just believe that's true about everybody, you know, and then you, since you brought up the three things, you know, the, the creativity, I think that's something that so many believers, I, as a pastor, you get asked all the time, how can I find my purpose? Which is always going to be wrapped up in some form or fashion, what God gifted you to do, right? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think what most people just don't recognize is, is that he's a creative God, right? Yeah. We, all know, we all know that right? on yes. self. But many discount the fact that, he, okay, he created you in his image. Guess what? You're now a creative being. And I really, truly believe that there is a creative genius inside of every single human being. And some of us are trapped and don't even know it's there. And I, and I truly believe that. And that, that genius that you have can change the world doesn't mean you're going to be famous. doesn't mean you're going to be known by, you know, 7 billion people. Mm-hmm. But you certainly have the creative genius to have a major impact and help the people around you. And then that leads to the third one, which is I really believe we are created to be compassionate. And we see it when somebody runs into a burning building. Mm-hmm. We see it when something like this happens in Turkey and people just start giving and giving and doing the different things. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in us. But sometimes we just need like this 
this beacon or someone to just kind of shake us up a little bit and say, your story matters. You matter. And all of these things are in you. What are you going to do to live an inspiring life? Hmm. Clint, thank you so much for sharing your story and Gabriel's story. Um, And of course, uh, letting people know more about Big Bold Brave. How can they find out more about it? And how can they engage with you either on your website or social media? The website, I think of as the the one-stop shopping. It's probably the easiest place to go. I recently started just a once a week newsletter. I don't like clutter like anybody else. So it's only once a week and it's not going to be, you know, take you three hours to read it. Just some free coaching tips and some useful tools. But if they go to the website, bigboldbrave.us, and they can find that, they can find out how to, if they want to bring me in as a speaker to a corporate event or something like that, they can find that, uh, the coaching, social media, all that stuff is on there. I do want to point out, you may have some international listeners as well, though. Mm -hmm. And so if they're going to buy the book just because of shipping nowadays, (laughs) then you probably don't want to buy the book through the website. You'd want to buy it through Amazon or wherever books are sold. Okay. Well, Clint, thank you so much. I think that you shared a lot of really even good tips today. Uh, I, I hope that someone's out there listening that if they have gone through something, they can they can really take to heart, you know, what you shared today and find, you know, some purpose in that pain, but also live their lives in a big, bold and brave way. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I, I truly appreciate it. From Positively Joy Ministries comes Journaling in His Joy, a new journal that can help you discover what brings real joy by journaling every day and creating a six-month record of memories worth collecting. With over 240 journaling pages, monthly and weekly check-in sheets, and weekly coloring journal pages, This guided journal will help you find joy even in difficult times by actively looking and choosing to see it in every moment. In this journal, you'll look for joy every day and record what you see and experience. Maybe you'll experience it in a rainbow or a song or in the sound of laughter. Choose joy on days where nothing seems to go right and spread that joy to others. Get your copy of Journaling in His Joy, available at Amazon and other fine booksellers. Thank you for listening to Positively Joy. Go to PositivelyJoy.com to hear previous episodes and to learn more about our ministry and books. Support Positively Joy by becoming a Patreon member and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks to Mars Coleman for the use of his song, The Joy of Knowing. And thanks to Susan Marie for editing and production of the podcast. Till next week. Oh, the joy of knowing, the joy of knowing you.